ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. We will begin in verse 22. No song or any other weird things this morning at the start. We'll just start reading together. We'll read all the way through verse 34, I think. And then we'll stop and go through the text. So Luke chapter 12, 22 through 34. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have. And give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, this, I think, is our fourth week now in Luke chapter 12. And uh, I'm preaching... Uh, I hope this is. I hope you know this. I'm preaching to myself as much as to to anyone else in the in the text. Um, uh, I'm hanging on uh, through the text and trying to do these evaluations of my life and my character. And it's not easy. It's not easy to be confronted by the words of Jesus. So if you find any part of it challenging, that's good. I think it's, it's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to push. It's not supposed to, to feel comfortable or easy. Um, and it hasn't been comfortable or easy for me. And, and I want to say that because I don't want to give you the impression that, um, that I'm somehow out of the crosshairs. As a matter of fact, standing up here preaching these things from Luke chapter 12, I feel like the, the bullseye. I feel like the target. Um, not from you, but from the text. If you feel any hint of that as you listen to the words of Jesus here, I think that's how we're supposed to feel. But it's hard. It's not easy. 
Um, in verses 13 through 21, Jesus dealt with greed, covetousness, and you will find a hint of, of what we just read now in those verses too. If you read in verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You compare that to verse 23. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. This is about life and death, what it truly is versus what the world sees life and death to be. And so you may remember this, you may not. It's no fault of yours if you don't. But the pivot here on the heels of 1 Corinthians is to try to get a glimpse in Luke chapter 12 of a resurrection worldview of life, because that's what this is about. Jesus is a man who knows that he is going to the cross, and it's not far away at this point. The things that he's saying and the way that he is teaching has that view in mind. In fact, it always has, but it's more poignant near the end. He is on a mission. He is going to give his life. And the things that he says are increasingly challenging. At least that's how they hit me. They strike me as increasingly challenging. And if you open a magazine, get on the internet, look at the stock market, our world yells as loud as it can that life is about... Things like covetousness and greed. Our largest companies, our advertising companies, Google, Facebook, our advertising companies, and billions of dollars worldwide for the world. This is what life is about. What can I get? What can I have? What should I pursue? What should I want? How do I get what I want? And in verse 15, Jesus just bluntly says that life is not about that. It's not about that. And then after dealing with covetousness and greed, today we read that he takes the side of worry and concern for safety. It's all still material stuff that he's dealing with our feelings about. But if you were fairly unscathed last week, and I hope we all were, but I doubt that. I wasn't. If you were fairly unscathed last week dealing with covetousness and greed, now the, the, the pivot, the change is, okay, do you deal with worry and issues of security? Maybe you're not the kind of person that is in pursuit of all the things that you want and covet, and maybe you don't hold on to things with tight fists. But are you the kind of person that wants to make sure you have a plan laid out for feeding your family, for covering catastrophe, for how, what are we going to do if this happens, and how can I live if this happens, and how do I secure this, and I've got to work to provide this, and on and on. Is that where your aim is? Maybe your aim is not on material possessions that you can gain. Maybe it's not on 
greed that you can hang on to. But do you struggle with the other side of it? Do you busy yourself with figuring out how you're going to survive, how you're going to continue, how you can provide safety and security for you and yours? Is that your aim? Do you wrestle with any part of that? Now we could turn. We could go back to 1 Corinthians. We could hear Paul acknowledge that he wishes that all of us would be single just as he, although that would be the end of of the human race. But his point being, I wish that you were all single as me so that you would all be unburdened with the cares of this world. And in there you should hear an acknowledgement that if you are a man with a family, a woman with a family, that there are real obligations that we're confronted with, responsibilities that have to be met. Jesus is not at odds with Paul here. But Jesus is speaking, I think, to something deeper. Where our confidence lies, where our fear lies, what our faith overcomes. Let's take it verse by verse in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. Not shirk all your responsibilities. But do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. That's a resurrection worldview. Because when you break it down fundamentally, materialistically, elementally, it's not. What do you need to live? Assuming you have oxygen to breathe, and you need to eat, you need to drink, You need clothing, shelter. That's what you need to live. Jesus is saying, no. Life is more than that. Life is not a calculation of calories and energy. Life is more than keeping the organs of your body functioning. Life is more than keeping your your neurons and your brain firing. Life is more than, than a machine that functions on biological fuel. It's more than that. Now, the materialists would say it's not. It's not. They would say that is what life is. The atheist would say it's not. That's what life is. And anyone who says that life is more than that is adding their own personal definition... They're attributing what they value in life and they're projecting that onto others for the meaning of life. But in the end, if there is no life after death, if there is nothing when we close our eyes for the final time, then life purely is what you eat and drink and wear. What sustains the body? Jesus, life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Now, there's something fundamental there that you have to settle, and I I hope that it's settled for you, but in case it's not, Jesus is speaking to something metaphysical, something that cannot be grabbed and held on to, something you can't hold in your hands. Life 
has meaning and purpose beyond merely continuing in the flesh. Life is not about fighting for the last breath, clinging to your last chance. And I'm not saying you shouldn't fight to the last breath if you're in that situation or cling to the last chance. I'm saying life is more than that. And again, this is a man who is prepared and preparing to lay his life down, to say goodbye to this world. It's one thing to acknowledge that that feels right. And I think most human beings would acknowledge that feels right. There's something that just feels off about the idea of dying and that's it. And you say, well, how do you know that? How, how can you say that? I can say that because from the history of the world until now, across all peoples and cultures, that has never been right. That has never felt right. That has not sustained people. There is something inside the human mind that believes at its core that life is more than what you hunt and kill and eat. I would call it the remnants on the human heart of the image of God that he bestowed upon Adam and Eve originally. There is something impressed upon our hearts that drives us, that does not let us settle upon the idea that this is all there is and that it's purposeless, that it's meaningless beyond what you make of it. So it's one thing to say what Jesus is saying here feels right. Yes, I know life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. That feels right. But what does it mean? If you can't drill down into any more detail than that, you're left with nothing. If the level of I believe there is a God or I believe there is life after death, but the level of detail stops there, you're left bankrupt and ultimately no better off than the person who says there is nothing after this because in both scenarios, you're left with making up for yourself whatever purpose or hope or meaning there is to existence. Just as the atheist would say, life is what you make of it. The person with no more detail other than to say, there is a God, I believe something happens after this, they're at the same practical place as the atheist, making whatever they will of it. If there is a God then, there must be some revelation about that God. There must be some detail from that God. There must be some instruction in order to serve that God. Life has to move, real life, eternal life has to move beyond the 
hopefulness of imaginary fairy tales and into the realm of something attainable, something possessable, something dependable. A promise, a covenant, a pact. Or else, barring that, whatever God out there that exists is of no practical use to you and I. But we have a God who has revealed Himself in Christ, in prophets, in text, and He does not leave us ambivalent or ambiguous as to how to serve Him as to what, we ex- what He expects from us, we have a God who has offered salvation in very clear terms. Here is your sin. You stand condemned because of it. Here is my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will pay for your sin through His own perfect life, death, and resurrection. If you, sinner, by faith, trust in this arrangement that I have made in my Son, I will forgive your sin and grant you the eternal life that I created you for before sin brought death into this world. I will forgive your sin and transform you from Son of Man into Son of God. I will forgive your sin And put away all of my wrath and make you a child of grace. All swinging upon the axle of grace through faith. Grace. Not wages. Grace. Not something you've earned. Grace. Something given. Grace by faith, not grace by deed, because then it's a wage. It's not grace anymore. If you do something to earn it, it's a wage. It's a paycheck. Salvation becomes merit-based. But if it's grace by faith then all you must do to be saved is look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and believe. Believe. Believe He is the Son of God. Believe that He lived a sinless life so that He could be the sacrifice you are not qualified to be. Sinner. Believe that God has looked upon His crucifixion As the Lamb of God slain in sacrifice. Believe that He has risen from the grave because death, the power of death, has no power over a sinless Christ. Power of death, power of sin, connected by Adam, judgment, justice to the sinner, has no power over Jesus. He is no sinner. And so God has raised him from the grave. He has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believe. It's this Jesus that is pleading with us in verse 23. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. It's the same Jesus who in verse 15 is saying life is more than possessions. Life is more than things. Life is more than what you have or what you can get. Now his reasoning is familiar, and we'll just read it. It needs very little explanation. It's basic in verse 24. I would say verses 24 through 28 are the logic here. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? The reasoning here is God sustains life, not you. The same God who sustains life for the birds and for the grass is the same God who sustains you. And by worrying, you're demonstrating you don't believe. You don't have the faith required here. If you believe that God has sent His only Son to die on the cross for you, but you don't believe that God will put food on your table, can you see the inconsistency? Why has God sent Jesus to die for you? Because you're more valuable to Him than birds or grass. Those things are here today and gone tomorrow. But you, He has lived and died for you. And you think He won't feed your kids? You think He won't cover you in a storm? It's inconsistent. It doesn't follow. You can't say logically, I believe in the Son of God who has died on a cross and risen from the grave to save me from eternity because God loves me, but I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table. If I don't do this, we won't eat. If I don't do this, we won't make it. If I don't have this, we're in trouble. It doesn't follow. Now verse 29 offer the conclusions here. And I've got four of them. I'm going to work through these. First, verse 29 and 30. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. So conclusion, conclusion number one, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, whatever that is. 
For that's how all the nations of the world, and the word nations in the Greek is the same as peoples, that's how the peoples of the world, the nations of the world, it's not a political thing that he's saying, it's not nationhood as we think about it, it's that's how all the peoples of the world operate, your father knows that you need these things. And, and what parent is there who can't relate to the annoyance of a child who clearly believes that we have no idea of their needs. You've had this experience before. I've had this experience. Um, it's mostly with younger children because you rebuke them enough and they don't do it when they're older. But what, what parent doesn't understand what it's like to have the annoying six-year-old in the back seat saying for the fourth time on a trip, I'm hungry, are we going to eat anything? I'm hungry, are we going to eat anything? Daddy, I'm hungry. You're almost time to eat. And it's you could just turn around and... And quote the Bible, your father knows that you need these things, right? Yeah. If you're a parent, you've had that experience. If you're not a parent, you've given someone that experience probably. We understand. But can you apply that idea to God in heaven? I mean, we understand when a seven-year-old thinks that we're fallible and we forgot about them in the back seat. We understand that because we are fallible. We've probably shown the seven-year-old that we're fallible from time to time. The same seven-year-old who I would rebuke as the one who on a lazy Saturday, I realized, oh, it's two o'clock and we haven't ate lunch yet. The seven-year-old has reason. What reason do we have to suspect that our father is oblivious to what we need? But the nations of the world, the peoples of the world are very concerned about these things. They're very, and you know what? They will make a religion out of telling you how concerned you ought to be about these things. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there are people who have no faith in God and have devoted themselves to trying to make sure we eat this or we grow this or we don't destroy this or we preserve this because if they don't serve these deeds with all their hearts and if you don't come along beside them and buy into all of their sentiment the whole world is going to starve to death you think what we read in the book of revelation is apocalyptic spend some time on a campus there are apocalyptic proclamations everywhere spend some time in the senate i think one senator said that we've got less than 10 years before the whole world explodes before global warming kills us all. Now, if you don't think that's apocalyptic prophecy, it's because you don't speak their religion. Now, look, we're stewards of things on this world, and we should care about the earth, but there are folks here who don't believe that there is a God who loves or cares about them at all. That's how the world thinks. It's true. But you do not seek, it says in verse 29. It's interesting, the word seek, when Jesus uses it, um, it means more than just, you know, seek in the basic sense. It seems to have a spiritual connotation. I'll give you a couple examples. The, he doesn't use the word that often, the word seek, very often. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, this is, this is Jesus speaking. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. You, you get the sense that seeking for Jesus is about more than just going to work and clocking in and hoping to get a paycheck. It's about putting your heart after something. It's about pursuing with devotion. Here's another one. Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. This is in a parable. Listen to how he uses the word seek. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had to buy it. Do you see how seeking in Jesus' teaching is, it's about more than just, look, I have responsibilities, so I'm going to go to work and clock in and earn a paycheck and provide for my family. Or I'm going to go outside and take care of the animals or whatever. It's about more than that. It's about where you've set your heart to pursue. Luke 13, 24, strive to enter the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. This word seeking is speaking to something deeper than surface level responsibility. When Jesus says here, do not seek what you should eat or drink, I don't think he means, well, just throw your hands up, you know, go sit out by the side of the road and manna will fall from heaven. Let's not insult the Lord with this kind of reading of it to the ignorance of the rest of scripture, but let's understand that there is a temptation as human beings to live your life one day at a time, not with a desire to serve God, not with devotion to serve God, but just to keep putting food on the table. Just to keep paying the bills. Just to keep the bodies eating and the bodies clothed. The mouths fed. Now, if you are a mom, a dad a young man, a young woman, you should be working to keep mouths fed, bodies clothed. But there's a difference between doing that and making that your life. Have you made your life about the job, the task, the responsibility? If you're a Christian, God has called you to more than that, not less. You need to honor the responsibility. God has called you to more than simply the responsibility of feeding and clothing. Life is more than that. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you know how many people spend their life in an endless cycle of Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday Stop for a day or two, rinse, repeat. Now, probably everyone in this room does that to a certain extent. But Christians are called to more than that. That happens along the way. The calling is higher. Do not seek what you should eat or drink, nor have an anxious mind. That word is funny, anxious, the, the anxious mind. That word in the Greek only appears one time in the New Testament. Now the word anxious in English is used and translated from other words several times, but that word anxious mind, once. And it can mean anxious like worried or afraid. But when the word's used in the Greek Bible of the day, it meant high-minded or proud. And 
I don't know that that's how the Lord means it here, but there is something prideful in thinking it's my job to put food on the table. If I work hard, I can do this. That may not be the context. The context may be worry here. But there is something wrong of a child of God determined to provide instead of determined to serve his master. Be afraid of where your faith is if you seek after things the way the world does. Second conclusion point is verse 31. Instead, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. You see what, how, it, how it comes to us? Seek the kingdom of God. These things will be added to you. They come along the way. You're telling me if you're a man or a woman here, And you're seeking God's kingdom. You want to serve the Lord. You want to build His kingdom. That as you're doing that, He's going to cause the circumstances of your life to be so neglected that you starve to death and go naked. That's what you think is going to happen? No. You seek the kingdom of God. You serve God. You make it your aim to bring glory to Him. There will be food on the table. Work will be involved. (laughs) But work will not be the drive. Are you in the Lord's service or are you in man's service? Who do you work for? Third conclusion point, verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't need to be afraid about what's going to happen if you serve God with all your heart. You don't need to be afraid. God is pleased to give you the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to be afraid that He's going to let you starve to death. Do not fear. Fear versus faith. Have faith in God. King Saul was a man of fear. Over and over again you read in the text. I'm talking so much about Saul and David right now because they're in my studies constantly right now for Sunday school across the way with the youth. Saul's a man of fear. Over and over again as Saul fails, over and over again, he says, I'm sorry, I was afraid. I'm sorry, I was afraid. I'm sorry, I was afraid. David, over and over again, faith in God. God will uphold me. God will avenge my enemies. God will do this in His time. I won't raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. But it's more than David and Saul. It's being a son of Adam versus a son of God. Listen to this verse from Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. Adam, after he sinned, says to God, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. The very first words that we find on the other side of the human fall, the invitation of death into the world. I heard your voice. Why? Because Adam's a sinner. He's every right to be afraid of God. He should be afraid of God. But Christ, Christ has given his life to make you sons and daughters of God. Not sons of men, not sons of Adam, sons and daughters of God. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 8, the first 11 verses. Stay with me here. See God dealing with fear 
in the person of Jesus Christ. See it in, here in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's what this is all about. Don't spend your life in material possessions. Don't spend your life putting food on the table. Don't spend your life putting clothes on the back. Don't serve the flesh. Don't walk according to the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Pursue the kingdom of God. You understand, this eliminates fear. This is Jesus in verse 32. Do not fear. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And this is the Romans 8 version of it. There is there, do not walk according to condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's a resurrection worldview. The law of sin and death says you sin, you die, you stay dead, you're in torment, you're in judgment. Christ sets us free from that. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, the same flesh that people in this world serve, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. That's Jesus crucified. He condemned sin in the flesh. Christ bore the wrath of God for us. Verse 5 of Romans 8 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what Jesus is saying. They covet what they don't have. They hang on to what they've got. They worry about food and shelter and clothing and this life and how to protect and how to survive and how to continue. And anytime there's any kind of existential threat to any of that, they're off their game. There's a war. They're off their game. There's a drought. They're off their game. There's an energy crisis. They're off their game. The price at the gas pump goes up. They're off their game. They're shaken. They're afraid. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit is what their minds are on. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. But if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's what Jesus means when He says life is more than the food and the body is more than clothing. Because if the Spirit that was in Christ is in you, then the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal body. You will not be resurrected by fruits and vegetables or by fancy clothes or by insurance policies or bank accounts or the very best security team that this world can purchase. You will not be resurrected on behalf of any of those things. But if you are Christ's, then the Spirit of Christ in you will raise your mortal body. 
That's amazing. That's what Jesus means. Fourth conclusion, last one in verse 33. And this is the sword. This is where it gets hard, painful. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's hard. That's really hard. I can imagine being the disciple James, hearing those words. It's not what I have. <sighs> what? No idea that he would be murdered. He didn't have 10 years left to live. You don't know what you have in front of you. There are people in this room who probably think they have years and years into the future and don't. This is the counsel of a dying man. This is Jesus on the way to the cross. Don't hold on to your possessions. Don't go out and pursue more and more and more. Sell what you have and give alms. Alms are, it's not institutional giving. Alms are not institutional giving. Alms is a simple exchange whereby those who have surrender and give to those who don't. How can the Lord say these things? How can he encourage us to give up what we have here and have treasure in heaven? This is, again, the whole reason we're in Luke 12, a resurrection world view. This is counsel that does not make sense if you see the world through flesh and blood. This does not make sense. And that's why it's so hard for us because as much as we would deny it, so much of our worldview is colored by what we see around us. And that's why you have to wrestle with this. You have to fight over this internally. You have to work through this. You have to be suspicious of your own thoughts and instincts when it comes to goods and possessions and goals and motivations and drives. You cannot let your flesh off the hook. This is not a monster that you defeat once and never fight again. This is hard. But Jesus is returning. And that's where I want to leave you. I want to leave you with a couple of passages. I'll read. You don't need to read. They're from Revelations chapter 19, 20, and 21. First passage, the return of the king, the real king. This is Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood 
and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will return. That's the view from Luke 12. Revelation 20. We see the king upon his throne. This is verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat on it. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 1-7. We'll close with this. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all these things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, I long for a place where I can be with you and there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. No more death. No more sorrow. No more separation. No more sin. But it is really hard to put that in focus in my life. It's very hard to see past the needs what feel like the needs around me. It's very hard to see past the wants and the desires. 
This is not easy for me. I assume it's not easy for us. And you know that. You know our, our hearts and our minds. You know that by and large we are a people who believe and who love you. But we wrestle and we struggle. And what you've called us to. What our flesh wants and desires. And what you've called us to. Help us to strive to seek to inherit your kingdom. Give us victory as sons and daughters. Give us strength where we fail. Lift us up when we fall. The only way we have a chance to be who you've called us to be is if you're doing the heavy lifting here. I place my life in your hands, Father, as a pastor, as a shepherd. I ask that you'll tend to this little flock. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.